I was sitting with my friend Arthur Cornblum in a restaurant. It was a Hornendaler cafeteria. And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. kind of sum it up. Ren and Barrett. Oh, be serious. <laughs> we viewed uh, each other as a gift from God to each other to complete us as individuals but also as a couple. And you know, I think that um, we made a decision right from the first and a commitment to each other that we would never consider divorce. That we would work through problems with God's help because of that commitment. That's right. Then another thing, uh, we determined to express and show love and affection often to each other. Even after 52 years, I'll still pat you in the dairy here when I pass you at times. Okay. <laughs> well, living life together um, in thick and thin, our joys and our hardships, that has been a great experience. Yes, we experienced that when we lost our daughter. I told you at the very beginning that we would not grieve alone. If we felt we needed to grieve, we would go to each other. We would grieve together, weep together, pray together, and that helped us. And, you know, through that, I learned not to sweat the small stuff, and I think that's so important in marriage. Now, one more thing comes to mind, and that is, I always try to give you the last word. That's right, my last word, Your Holiness. Yes, dear. Oh. <laughs> His last words are always yes, dear. That's a man who's lived a few years and learned a few lessons, right? Right, men? Our house got nailed with hail in that hailstorm a couple weeks ago, and we're going to need a new roof. And uh, Justin Bueller is going to put the roof on. And, and I was talking to him this morning, and I said, Justin, Brandon, I'm sorry, Brandon Wilson, who am I saying? Justin Bueller's in England. <laughs> Brandon is doing, Brandon Wilson's going to do our roof. And I said to him this morning, Brandon, we can't agree on a color for the roof. Chris wants one color and I want something else. And he said, well, then I'll just talk to Chris from now on. <laughs> so, you got to do what you got to do, right? Well, this is our last message today. Is week six in this series that we've been sharing together. Uh, G-Harmony, finding and keeping God's match for your life. And today, the topic that we're talking about is till death do us part. And uh, I, I just thought Harv and Jen would be perfect to introduce today's topic. Married 52 years, and I just think that's wonderful. Anybody here married longer than 52 years? I don't know if we've got anybody. Ben, you are not married longer than 52 years. 
<laughs> Dennis says it feels longer than 52 years. <laughs> Till death do us part. The permanence of marriage is what I want to talk about today. And uh, we've been walking through the Song of Solomon for the last six weeks. And so if you've got your Bibles, you may want to turn there. We're going to be in chapter 8 of the Song of Solomon. Uh, and looking at how this couple, Solomon and his wife, viewed their relationship as something that would last until they died. Uh, that would last until they died. Chris and I have been married for almost 16 years, and I have been in pastoral ministry for almost 25 years. And over that period of time, Chris and I have done pre-marriage counseling with I don't know how many couples. I have either married or participated in weddings for literally hundreds of couples. We have seen more weddings than you can even imagine. I, I haven't kept track over the years, but I wish I had. I wish I could tell you exactly how many weddings I've participated in. We've had every experience under the sun when it comes to weddings. Uh, yesterday, we had the opportunity to marry a young couple who occasionally attend Connect Church. And, uh, and it was kind of an extraordinary thing. Uh, they decided they wanted to get married up at Palisade Falls in Highlight Canyon. And uh, I, I tell you, it was like being in a cathedral right at the base of those falls. And we could hear the water coming down. And, and just a very simple thing. I think there were about a dozen of us or fewer. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> about a dozen of us. I'm not choked up. I'm just choking. Um, very sweet wedding. Very simple, though. Uh, they, you know, uh, just picked some flowers from the garden and, and headed up with a few friends and loved ones. Absolutely beautiful. And we've done a few weddings like that. When Chris and I got married, thank you so much. When Chris and I got married, we decided we just wanted to keep our wedding as simple as possible. And we got married up in the mountains in Idaho overlooking the Sawtooth Mountain Range, and it was very simple. But we've been to weddings as well, in which the, the bride and groom just put on this huge production. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to be critical at all, but uh, you, you've seen the TV show Bridezillas. Some of you have seen that. Or My Big Fat Redneck Wedding, have you seen that one? That's, uh, those, are, those are good shows. But uh, I've been... <laughs> I've been to a few Bridezilla weddings, okay? Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody been to, anybody been Bridezilla? Any girls admit to that? No, 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 no takers there. I've been to a couple of Bridezilla weddings. In fact, Chris and I uh, were participating in a wedding in Great Falls a number of years ago where literally the bride and the groom, it wasn't just Bridezilla, it was Groomzilla too. Uh, the two of them turned into such monsters. Excuse me. That when the wedding was over, relationships were literally destroyed. There were people after that wedding that wouldn't have anything to do with that couple because their wedding just turned into literally a celebration of selfishness. And here's what I want you to think about today. Some people, when it comes to getting married, spend way more time thinking and planning and investing in the wedding than they do in thinking and planning and investing in the marriage. And they're two completely different things. A wedding lasts for a day, but a marriage is intended to last for a lifetime. And so today what I want you to think about, whether you're married or you're single, either one, 
is the fact that God's design for every one of us is that if he brings us to the point of being married, that the intention is that it would be marriage for a lifetime. Now, if you're here today and you've been married sometime in the past and that marriage has not lasted for a lifetime, I'm not here to put a big guilt trip on anybody and and make you feel bad because like I've shared with you in weeks past, sometimes things happen in marriages and you can't always control the outcome. People make choices Uh, People sometimes decide to break the marriage vows and it's inevitable that the relationship deteriorates. I don't want to make you feel guilty today, all right? So that's, that's not what this is about. But this is about thinking about your situation. If you're married today, I want you to really seriously think about what can I do to invest in this relationship so that it will last a lifetime. Or if you're single and you're looking forward to someday being married, I want you to raise the bar so many people go into marriage and they, they think about things like what will happen if we get a divorce. And, and of course, if there's money involved, lots of people are signing prenuptial agreements, right? Chris and I have a prenuptial agreement. I told her that in our prenuptial agreement, I will never make the bed. And that was the one thing that I would never do. And uh, do you know that... Uh, even though that was in our prenuptial agreement, she still makes me make the bed quite often. And, <laughs> and I do it, you know? <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> but marriage is intended to life, last a lifetime. And so uh, just before we turn to the book of Sol- Song of Solomon, I want to ask you the question this morning, to you, in the way you have thought, whether you're young or you're more seasoned in age, uh, what do you think is more important, or, or maybe in your past, what was more important to you, the wedding or the marriage? When you think about that day that you're going to get married, do you think about what's going to happen at the party, or do you think about this being the first day of the rest of your life in this relationship? Very important distinction. And so that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I want to talk today about the Old Testament wedding tradition. And I want to walk through some things that aren't necessarily explicitly in the Song of Solomon, but we'll be referring to the Song of Solomon uh, from time to time. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Song of Solomon chapter 8, and uh, we'll refer to that some. But I want to walk you through the Old Testament wedding tradition and paint a picture for you of how couples were married, and in all likelihood, Solomon and his wife were married according to this old tradition that in some aspects is still celebrated around the world in Jewish communities today. And this is significant to us because the whole wedding tradition pointed to the fact that marriage was intended to be till death do us part. I'm struggling a little bit with my Bible this morning because I got a new Bible, and it's uh, large print. And so um, that's such a special thing to get to that age where you have to buy large print things. (laughs) But it won't stay open because it's new. So, Song of Solomon chapter 8. I want to start by talking about the first thing that would take place when a couple was going to get married. And the first thing, if you're taking notes on your cards, is this. Number one, they were betrothed. They were betrothed. This is an old term. Uh, Betrothal is an old term that is not quite synonymous to our English term of being engaged. 
You may remember if you've heard the Christmas story that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, meaning that they were engaged, but it's a little different than engagement. When a couple became betrothed, it was an arrangement that was made by their parents. And so the mother and dad of a young woman and the mother of a dad of a young man would get together and they'd say, I think that our children are probably going to be a good match. And so they would enter into a legal agreement that was called betrothal. And this legal agreement could only be broken by divorce. Once the parents made the decision that this young woman and this young man would get married, they could only break that agreement by getting a divorce. How does that sound to you, single ladies, single men? A few shaking heads saying no. Okay, but that was the first step in being betrothed. Um, Now, what would happen next is once this couple was in this agreement of betrothal, then the young man would begin to go through a period of training and intense spiritual discipleship by his father. His father would begin walking him through the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, and teaching him everything he needed to know about life and being a good husband. And the young woman who was betrothed to the husband would begin to be trained by her mother in the ways of being a godly wife. It was an intense period of training with the focus on someday being married for a lifetime. And then the other thing that was very important during this time is that during this betrothal period, the virginity of the young man and the young woman was carefully guarded by the entire family. Not just an individual choice. In America, we choose whether or not we're going to be sexually active and nobody really gets in our business. Mom and dad might threaten us or, you know, whatever. But by and large, nobody messes in our, our, our sexual behavior, right? But in Jewish culture, it was considered the responsibility of the entire family to guard the family's virginity and their sexual chastity. Uh, this is illustrated in Song of Solomon 8, Uh, verses 8 through 10. Would you look at this with me? Uh, This is the young woman's brothers speaking, and and they say this in verse 8. Take a look at this. Oh, I couldn't find a good classic picture of brothers, so I picked the nicest brothers I could find. Okay, here's what the brothers say, verse 8 of of Song of Solomon, chapter 8. They say this. We have a little sister... And she is too young to have breasts. And and what they're talking about here is this is a girl who has not yet come into puberty. So she's just a child. And they say, what will we do for our sister if somebody asks to marry her? Now now look at this, verse 9. If she's a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she's promiscuous like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. So they're using this illustration of a wall. If she is closed up, there is no door to her sexuality. They're going to heap honor of silver upon her. But if she has a tendency to be promiscuous like a door that's just swinging back and forth, then they're saying, we're going to bar that door closed because they understood that it was the family's responsibility to guard her virginity. It was a family responsibility. And this was part of the betrothal process. And then the young woman speaks in verse 10 and she says this, I was a virgin 
like a wall. In other words, she had kept herself pure until the day of her wedding. And she says, now my breasts are like towers. She's come to full maturity. And she says, when my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. He's delighted with what he sees. And that word delighted in the Hebrew language is the word shalom. And you've probably heard that word. It means peace. It means satisfaction. It means contentment. And what she's communicating here is that because she gave herself to him as a virgin, it has brought peace and contentment and satisfaction into their relationship. And not only that, but as we continue walking through this, you're going to see that it led to the security that would, that would last a lifetime in their relationship. So the first thing in the Old Testament wedding process was that they were betrothed. And then the second thing was this. They diligently prepared for marriage. They were betrothed, and then they diligently prepared for marriage. Now notice I'm talking about preparing for marriage, not just preparing for the wedding, but they prepared for marriage. They understood that marriage was till death do us part. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 6 here in Song of Solomon chapter 8. The young woman here says this, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. And that word seal in this Hebrew language is the kind of seal that would be placed on a legal document. She's saying that she is absolutely committed legally to this man. And then she goes on and she says, For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. It's talking about the endurance, the everlasting nature of a marriage relationship. Now, as they prepared for marriage, here's what would happen. At some point when the bride and groom were at the age where they could marry, sometimes betrothal would last a very long time, but when they were getting close to the time that they would marry, the groom would go to the bride's father, and he would offer the bride's father a marriage contract along with an amount of money or a dowry for the purchase price for the bride. So this was the next part of the process. And again, they're entering into a legal contract that was non, uh, that, that couldn't be broken without divorce. But he would bring this contract and then an amount of money. It could be money or it could be cattle or, or sheep or whatever or barter. You remember I told the story a few weeks ago about Jacob who worked for his father-in-law Laban for seven years as a purchase price for his wife. He worked. That was the dowry. This was very common in this tradition. And then, after the father accepted the contract and accepted the dowry, he would go to the woman that would be his wife, and in a very proper, formal ceremony, he would bring her a cup of wine. And uh, from what I read this week, he would slide the cup of wine to her, and this was basically a marriage proposal. And if she was willing to accept him as her future husband, she would drink the wine, But if she didn't want to be married to this man, she would just slide the wine cup back over to him. (laughs) And that would be a terrible rejection. (laughs) But she had the choice. She could receive him as her husband or she could refuse him. 
If she received him and they were committed to be married, then the next part, you've probably seen this in movies, the mothers would celebrate and they would take a plate, a china plate, and they would smash it on the signifying that now they had made the decision and it was irrevocable. In the same way that this plate couldn't be put back together as one whole piece, this, this union could not be gone back on. It was now permanent. And then after that, the groom would place a veil over the bride's eyes, symbolizing that she was pure, symbolizing that she was off limits to other men. And then, I love this part, then he would go back to his parents' home and he would begin to prepare a new room on the parents' house that would become their home. The bride and groom, once they were married, would go to live with the man's parents, but they wouldn't live with the mom and dad. They would live in a new room that the groom had prepared. And so what would happen is he would begin building, and the father would oversee it. And he would make sure that the groom was doing a good job building this room and furnishing it and decorating it and making it beautiful and ready for his wife. And at any time, if somebody came to that young man and said, when are you going to be married? Well, he wouldn't know. And he would say, only my father knows. And he couldn't marry his wife until his father said that that room, it was called a chupa in Hebrew language, a chupa. Not until the chupa was satisfactory by his father's approval could he get married. So they would say, when are you getting married? And he would say, only my father knows. Only my father knows. So that was all the preparation for marriage. Very, very keen on what it meant to be a good husband, what it meant to be a good wife, where are we going to live, how are we going to do this. And then they were finally married. This is number three in your notes. They were finally married when everything was ready. They were finally married when everything was ready. Chris and I have been involved in many couples' lives as they get ready for marriage. And I I have to tell you, there have been times when we have had to be very frank with a couple that was planning to get married. And we would say, we don't believe you are ready to get married. And they would say, but we love each other. But you're not ready to get married. There's these issues in your life that are not yet resolved. And we're worried that if you join together as husband and wife, it could be disastrous. We haven't done that very often, but from time to time it's happened. And in our culture, everyone in this room could probably point to examples that we know where couples weren't ready for marriage. Everything was built into this Old Testament marriage tradition to get ready for the marriage. When the chupa, this room on the father's house was ready, the father would go to the groom and he would say, now you can get married. And at that point, the groom would go to the bride's house and he would blow this ram's horn that is called a shofar and he would blow the horn and that would signify that it was time for them to get married. Now, the shofar is something that is used in all kinds of Jewish ceremonies. It's all through the Bible. Some of you have probably heard of shofar blown. I found a little clip of video of a shofar being blown at a wedding. And and this is what it might look like in, in a modern Jewish wedding. But it was similar to this back then. Go ahead and show this video.
And so that was part of the process, this blowing of the horn saying, now everything is ready. And from that point on, once the shofar was blown, the bride and the groom would not see each other. There was absolutely no contact because now all the preparations for the wedding were beginning to be made. And as the wedding date approached, the bride and groom would go into a period of fasting, no eating whatsoever, for a solid week. And then, finally, the day of the ceremony would come and they would stand before a priest. And the priest would invite them to join into the marriage covenant. Now, the word covenant is something that we don't use in the English language very much. If you've been in church very often, you've probably heard the word covenant, but uh, it doesn't mean much to our understanding culturally. A covenant was an ancient practice uh, in which two people who were making a commitment or an agreement, a legal contract, they would come together and they would butcher an animal. Sometimes it was a small bird, sometimes it was a goat or a sheep, sometimes a very large animal. And they would butcher this animal, and this is a little gruesome, but this is really what would happen in ancient cultures. They would, they would cut that animal from head to tail in half. And it was a very bloody thing. But then they would separate the halves to two sides. And so there would be a half of an animal over here. There'd be half an animal over here. The two parties would make the agreement of the covenant that they were going to make. And then they would walk through the center of that animal. It was a very solemn process. And what they were signifying, the symbolism was this. That if I break the terms of this covenant... May it be done to me what has been done to this butchered animal. That's how serious a covenant was. It wasn't something like, well, if I don't feel like being married anymore, I'm going to walk away. When a bride and groom entered into a marriage covenant, it was considered absolutely permanent. And so as the bride and groom stood before the priest... In this Old Testament wedding ceremony, he would take a knife and he would cut the groom's hand and he would cut the bride's hand and they would put their hands together and they would mingle their blood because in the Jewish tradition, everyone understood that a covenant always required the shedding of blood. A covenant always required the shedding of blood. And so then... The priest would pronounce them married. They would go to the wedding chamber. I talked about this a few weeks ago. And they would consummate their relationship. And then the party started. And for a week, there would be fast, or there would be feasting, not fasting, the fasting was before, feasting after, drinking, dancing, celebrating for a solid week. And that was how this all went. And you see how all of those parts reinforce the belief that marriage is a permanent relationship that goes till death do us part. So different than our Western American traditions in which it is so easy for us to dissolve a relationship and so often even going in, we're not really sure that we're 100% committed to this thing. In the Old Testament understanding of marriage, it was a very serious covenant. The young woman in verse 7 of Song of Solomon 8 says this. 
I love this. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, look at a couple of lines above. She says, love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. She's talking about marriage burning. And then verse 7, she says, many waters cannot quench this flame of love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. She's talking about a permanent relationship that absolutely cannot be severed. And again, like I said just a few minutes ago, if you're here this morning and you're married, and and maybe you've had trouble in your marriage and you've had thoughts of maybe I should quit, maybe I should just give up, I want to encourage you this morning. God is calling us as his people to be committed to relationships till death do us part. And if you're single this morning and someday you're looking forward to being being married, I, I hope that some of these ideas will stick with you today and that you'll remember that when you enter into that covenant, it's for the rest of your life. Now there's a reason why. And the reason is this. This is in your notes as well. The reason why God takes marriage so so seriously is because marriage is a symbol of his love for his people. Marriage is a symbol of God's love for his people, for his church. Let me walk you back through this marriage ceremony and show you how this applies to our relationship with God. First of all, all, God calls us to be his spouse. And it's an arranged marriage. In the same way that a groom and a bride, the marriage would be arranged by their parents, God arranged for us to be in a relationship with him by sending his son, Jesus. It's an arranged relationship. Secondly, in the same way that the groom would bring the 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 father of the bride, a dowry, we have also been purchased with a price. We've been purchased with a price. The Bible tells us that every person who sins must pay for their sins with death. But Jesus came and he paid that price of death on our behalf and he purchased our forgiveness so that we could be in a relationship with God the Father. We're purchased with a price. In the same way that the bride and groom would enter into a season of preparation, if you're a Christian and you're following Jesus and you're looking forward to the day that we will be in heaven with him, we're in a season of preparation. Just like the bride and groom would prepare themselves all those months and sometimes even years. The Bible tells us that even today, the church is being purified through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine this with all the scandal in churches around the world. But the Bible says that when we are with Christ, as the bride of Christ, the church will be without spot or wrinkle. There will be no blemish on the bride of Christ. We're preparing for that day. And here's the other part that I think is really cool about this preparation thing. Uh, In the same way that the groom went to his father's house to prepare the chupa, Jesus said that when he left the disciples and he ascended into heaven, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so that you can be there with me. 
We're in this season of preparation right now, and Jesus is preparing a place. Hey, he's been building that chupa for over 2,000 years. I bet it's going to be pretty cool. What do you think? And we don't know when the, the date of our marriage to Jesus is going to be. Only the Father knows. But when the Father says the time is ready, this is what's going to happen. The trumpet is going to sound. This is what the Bible tells us. The trumpet is going to sound, just like those shofars at the Jewish wedding. The trumpet will sound, and then what the Bible says is that the dead who believed in Christ will rise from their graves, and all of us will be gathered to meet Jesus in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever as the bride of Christ. And then the next part of the wedding is the marriage supper of the Lamb the big party that follows the wedding ceremony. Isn't that beautiful how all of this symbolism prefigures everything that God wants to happen in our relationship with him? We are, if, if we are following Jesus, if we've been part of the family of God, we are the bride of Christ. Every one of us are the bride of Christ. And you know what? It's a forever relationship. And this is why it's so important for us as the people of God to represent God's love well. When God says in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament that he hates divorce, it's not just because because it offends him. It's because when Christian people, when God's people divorce, it doesn't represent him very well. And so this is why it's so important that we prepare ourselves, whether you're in a marriage or looking forward someday to being married. This is why it's so important that we decide in our hearts and and get ready and prepare ourselves for marriage that will last a lifetime because we are the representatives of God's love on this earth. And I want to encourage all of us, let's represent his love well. One last thought, and then we're going to pray together. In every covenant, I talked about that blood covenant. In every covenant, somebody must die. The book of Ephesians tells us, Husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Husbands, what's he saying? What's the Apostle Paul saying in that that chapter? He's saying, Husbands, die for your wife. Yes, dear. Right? Yes, dear. And it says, this is the one that too many people quote out of context, I think. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Lay down your life for your husbands. Wives, yes, dear. Right? It's this mutual dying for one another that leads to a harmonious relationship that can last for a lifetime. It's not one person being the boss and the other one being a doormat. That's not God's picture of marriage. It's both people in the relationship saying, yes, dear, how can I serve you, dear? How can I lay down my life, dear? And in any covenant, someone must die. And in the best relationships, in the best Christian marriages, both people are constantly dying to their own desires and to their own needs and laying down their lives to serve the other one. This couple that I married yesterday, 
They're, they're just kids, it seems to me. Uh, and, and the best advice I could give them was this. And, and I'll share this with you. I've probably said it before. I believe that marriage is one of the most unnatural thing two people can do. Marriage is the most unnatural thing two people can do because it requires that you die to yourself. We're naturally selfish, self-preserving, self-interested people. But when we learn to love with the kind of love that God calls us to, we just offer ourselves as sacrifices day after day after day. Why? Because that what, that's what leads to a marriage that lasts till death do us part. If you're here with your spouse, would you turn to him or her and say, till death do us part? Would you say that? <laughs> I saw that, Vicky. Vicky's stabbing Tino. <laughs> Are you in a hurry for death? <laughs> Oh, boy, maybe, maybe that was a mistake. <laughs> Till death do us part. Let me ask you one question, and then, and then we'll close today. What are your next steps today? In this whole series, as John and I have been teaching, we haven't given you next steps because everyone in, in this room is in a different place in life. And, and what are your next steps? I hope that you'll take just a moment and jot some things down for you. Single people, you might need to decide, I need to think differently about marriage. Uh, Married people, maybe you need to lay down your life and sacrifice and choose to die. I think Harv's words at the end of that, that video are some of the best words that men we can learn to say. Yes, dear. Write that on your card if that's your next step. Some of us guys insist on having our own way all the time, right? All right, would you put your things aside? <laughs> Is she filling in your next steps for you, Terry? Oh. And your words are, yes, dear. What'd she say? Yes, dear. <laughs> yes, dear. Perfect, yes. All right, would you put your things aside and, and would you bow your heads with me and, and let's pray. Lord, as we, as we wrap up this series on relationships and as we contemplate, Lord, where we have been as individuals and where we are going as God's people, Lord, we ask you today to purify us, wash us by the blood of Jesus, and Lord, bring us to the place, Lord, where we can live out what you're calling us to be and do God, we want to represent you well. We want to represent your love on this earth well. And so enable us, I pray, by by the empowerment of your spirit to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. Jesus, for marriages in our church family that are in trouble, we pray for healing. For marriages, Jesus, that Uh, have been in trouble and are in the healing process, Lord, we pray that you'll bring it to completion. For every single person in this room, Lord, I pray, God, that you will bring each person the perfect match in your time and according to your will, Lord, and that you will help us to do our part as, 
as individuals to sow the seeds of preparation for a lifetime of marriage. And Lord, I pray that like Harv and Jen are celebrating this year 52 years, I pray, Lord, for every one of us, Lord, that you will give us many, many years with one spouse. And Lord, that we could come to the end of our life saying, I've done my best to serve God well and to love my husband, love my wife according to the principles of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Would you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment? John's going to lead us in a beautiful, beautiful worship song. And uh, we're going to share in communion in just a moment. But just before we do, I want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you have not yet received the forgiveness of Jesus into your life, I would love to pray with you to be washed by his blood. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible says that every person has to pay the penalty of death for sin. But Jesus in his generosity came and he paid that price as a substitute for you and for me so that we could have that that debt paid and we could be reconciled to the love of God. And if you've not yet received Jesus and his forgiveness and, and made a fresh start in your life, I would love to pray with you to do that just before we share in communion this morning. And and if you'd like to be included in this prayer, I'm not going to ask you to come up here or stand up or any of that stuff. Just right where you are, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you would like to be included in that prayer, would you slip up your hand right where you are and I'll know that you need prayer to receive the forgiveness of Jesus this morning. Anybody at all this morning? (coughs) All right, I don't see any hands. So Jesus, this morning, collectively, as the people of God, as the family of God, we say thank you, Lord, for your indescribable gift. We love you, Jesus. And in this season of preparation, Jesus, will you purify us and make us ready for that day when we will hear the trumpet sound and we will be gathered into heaven to spend eternity with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, this morning we're going to celebrate in communion and a couple of things that I want to make you aware of just before we do. Uh, John's going to lead us in worship as, as we're served. Uh, we practice open communion here at Connect Church, which just means you don't have to be a member uh, here in order to receive communion. But if you're a guest with us, we would invite you to be our guest as we partake in this ceremony. Uh, thank you, Terry. This is matzah bread, which is the traditional Old Testament bread of Passover. And this is what Jesus would have shared with his disciples. And uh, it it says that, that Jesus took the bread, the matzah, and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And And we're going to invite you to come and take a piece of this broken bread and eat it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. And then the Bible says after supper he took the cup and this signified his blood, the new covenant in his blood. And as we drink it, we're doing it in remembrance of him and we're worshiping him, we're receiving his cleansing and his forgiveness in his blood. And this morning in the, in the very ancient church tradition, we're going to share a common cup 
And so I'm going to ask you to come forward and you can share in the sip cup or in the dip cup. (laughs) You can take your bread and dip it if you don't want to sip. And Chris will wipe the sip cup and we'll keep it as germ-free as we can. Uh, But either way that you're comfortable is fine. But the common cup symbolizes that we are one body. We are the, the body of Christ. We are unified. And this is why quite frequently we do it this way is because of that rich symbolism of one cup that is shared among the many members. And so we invite you to worship this way. Let's stand and then uh, you, can, you can file forward and receive. Do you want to have Terry to hold one cup? All right. Terry has the dip cup. Chris has the sip cup. Let's pray and ask God's blessing, and then we'll worship together. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. We ask you to bless these elements, this broken bread, this cup, Lord, that represents your blood. We thank you. We ask you to bless them. And Jesus, as we partake and we remember you, we pray, Lord, that all the power of salvation, the power of your broken body for our healing, the power of your blood for the forgiveness of sin and the purification of your church will be transferred to us as we eat and drink. We thank you and we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. John, lead us and and feel free to come and receive.